0: Walk into an American Starbucks these days, and you'll find four different options for plant-based milk. There's almond milk, which was invented in 12th century Italy. You can get soy milk. That originates in 14th century China. There's also coconut milk, which has been around for basically as long as coconuts. And then there's the baby of the bunch, oat milk. Oat milk is made by mixing water and oats, blending it up, extracting the solids, and treating it with enzymes. It was developed in 1994 by a Swedish food scientist named Ricard Uste, who was researching lactose intolerance. Uste and his brother turned the product into a company, Oatly, which last year booked $421 million in revenue, double its revenue from 2019. In the United States, oat milk is now the second most popular plant-based milk. That success is largely because oat milk appeals to a few key demographics—environmentally conscious consumers, foodies, and people dealing with lactose intolerance. But one group is not psyched about oat milk, and that's the dairy industry. For years, it's been trying to limit how companies like Oatly can package, label, and advertise their products. At one point, the European Union almost prohibited Oatly from even describing oat milk as creamy. Now, who gets to use the word creamy or package their beverage in a carton might seem like weird debates, but they're an important part of a massive movement to make plant-based alternatives for foods whose production hurts our environment. So it kind of is time to ask ourselves, what constitutes real food and who gets to decide? Now, at least some of the answers can be found in the dairy aisle. This is The Quartz Obsession, a podcast that explores the fascinating backstories behind everyday ideas and what they tell us about the global economy. I'm your host, Kira bindrum Today, oat milk and why dairy has gotten so dramatic. I am joined now by Sarah Todd, who is a senior reporter at Quartz. She's also based in New York, so we're together in the studio. I thought, Sarah, we might start by talking about what we're drinking right now. Why don't you tell the listener about it?
1: So we are drinking a pair of oat maple lattes, which I picked up from a little Park Slope coffee shop. And the story of how I got it is actually a semi-interesting story in that I thought that I was going to go pick it up at Starbucks, which Kira, as you just mentioned, has a partnership with Oatly. They sell oat milk everywhere. But there was no Starbucks where I thought it was going to be at Head Shut Down. So then I had to go to a little indie coffee shop and I was making a gamble. I was thinking, will they or won't they have oat milk? And advertised right on the side outside was oat milk make a latte. So I knew that oat milk has truly made it.
0: What a reversal of fortunes where, oh, the
1: Starbucks is closed. Go to
0: the indie coffee shop. So how would you describe the taste of oat milk?
1: I would say that it is creamy that it is rich and that it's more comparable to the taste of whole milk than a lot of other alternative milks. But what do you think, Kira?
0: Well, I have to confess to you, this is actually my first oat milk tasting. I am a diehard half and half person, like the one thing you definitely shouldn't be putting in your coffee. I am quite religious about, but it's it's good oat milk. It is there is just a little aftertaste of oat, which is to be expected. But it's sweet and it is creamy, which are the two things over sugar that I really uh, need in my in exactly. My coffee, so, so tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this particular topic. It is not you are not necessarily our chief milk
1: reporter. So, no. Although I would say that I'm very interested in beverages, but specifically I got interested in oatly because they are a very weird company. They have this very colorful CEO whose name is Tony Peterson. They have a very divisive Super Bowl commercial that ran during this past year's Super Bowl in which he was seen playing the keyboard in the middle of a field singing, wow, no cow, in a very off-key tone of voice. And I just really wanted to know what was up with Oatly, and that led me into a broader obsession with oat milk as a whole.
0: So much of journalism just starts with like, what's the deal with that? (laughs) I'm just going to look into that. My first job ever when I was a sophomore in high school was an intern at Milk Pep, which is this like, it's probably a lobbying group, but it's a marketing group uh, (laughs) that is funded by the milk companies uh, that is trying to promote drinking milk. And what this means is that at the time, remember the Got Milk campaign was so big, they had a whole closet full of swag from the Got Milk campaign. So I had like 25 Got Milk posters at yes. one point, including, of course, the coveted Jonathan Taylor Thomas uh, Got Huge. Milk poster. Yeah. It was a real like, highlight of my teens. What
1: did you do with all of your Got Milk posters?
0: I think they're gone now, but, <laughs> but for that period. <laughs> Tragic.
1: They were really nice. You know, and a sign of the changing times, Chobani recently, while advertising one of its oat products, had a similar milk mustache advertisement featuring a Timothée Chalamet lookalike. Which, why not the real Timothee Chalamet? I don't know. But I think maybe they were trying to make a kind of meta statement, like the oat milk is like milk, but it's not. This is like Timothee Chalamet, but he's not. You know, there are layers mm, on them.
0: Wow, that is a mm-hmm. real, like trajectory. Yeah, from JTT
1: to Timothy. I
0: want that that side by side. So let's get a little bit into like the oat milk basics, oat milk 101, as it were. And one of the things that I thought was cool when we picked this topic is we probably could have gone into any of those milks, soy milk, uh, coconut milk, and had an interesting story. But we chose the newest one, which I think is kind of cool. So what is oat milk. How do you make it? Can you make it yourself? Like give us kind of the basic definition.
1: Oh yeah. You can absolutely make it at home. I haven't tried, but if you want to, here's what you do. And this is basically what all the big producers do too. Uh, You take oats and you take water and you mix them together and then you strain out the solids. You maybe do that once or twice and then you refrigerate it and you're done. And then obviously the the manufacturers have more processes. They're adding enzymes and they're doing fancy things too, but that's the gist. And you can add flavoring if you want. If you're making it at home, you could add a little vanilla. That could be nice.
0: And at this point, are we just talking about milk or are there a lot of other oat-based kind of dairy alternatives out there?
1: Yeah, there are actually a lot. So oat milk products are out there in numerous forms. They include oat yogurt, which you can call oatgurt if you're so inclined. There's oat ice cream. There's oat whipped cream substitute. Uh, So there are really all kinds of ways that you can use it. I think that, as you mentioned with your latte, often there's a little bit of an aftertaste of oats, but that's not unpleasant, so people can be into it. Oat, Oat cheese? Oat cheese, I don't know if there's oat cheese yet, but that's a good idea. Vegan cheese is sort of the white whale of vegan products as a whole. It's really hard to make fake cheese that tastes good, but people are working on it. As a half and half drinker, my
0: perception is that any alternative dairy, whichever of those other milks I'm choosing, is healthier for me in some way, and that by choosing half and half, I'm actively choosing to be unhealthy. Is that perception, is that right? Is oat milk healthier than dairy milk?
1: Well, the interesting thing about healthy as an adjective is that it's somewhat meaningless, actually, when you really start breaking down nutritional data. Go on. Yes. (laughs) So, I mean, you know, oat milk and other alternative milks have pros and cons, just like dairy has certain pros and cons. There are all these trade-offs. In terms of how the nutritional data sort of compares oat milk versus regular milk. So oat milk has three grams of protein compared to cow's milk that typically has seven or eight grams of protein. So some, not a ton. It has some fiber. Milk has none. So that's cool. You can get a tiny bit of fiber, although less fiber than you would have if you ate, say, a bowl of oatmeal. They both have different sort of calcium and added vitamins that you need. Milk has those naturally. Oat milk and most other alternative milks just add them later in the process. So you're getting them both ways. So from a nutritional standpoint, they're both fine, I would say. Where oat milk really has an advantage nutritionally is more when it comes to things like it's gluten-free. So that's great if you have celiacs. It's also tree nut-free. So if you have any kind of nut allergy, it's safe. And then also something like 65 percent of the global population is lactose intolerant to some degree or another. So if you struggle with digesting milk, then certainly oat milk could be preferable.
0: So outside of the individual decision-making part of this, where you're sort of um, making choices based on your health or if you're lactose intolerant, are there any larger environmental or sustainability reasons that someone might want to choose oat milk or even any alternative milk over regular dairy?
1: Yeah. So from an environmental perspective, there are several advantages to oat milk as opposed to dairy. One of them is that dairy is, accounts for a high proportion of global carbon emissions. It constitutes about 4% of all global emissions. So from that perspective, certainly oat milk uses a lot less carbon. It also uses a lot less land, a lot less water, a lot less energy overall. It's also preferable compared to almond milk. It uses about six times less water than almond milk. If any form of milk
0: is sort of worse than no form of milk, than just water and other things that we could use as beverages, why milk? Why do we even need milk? What if we just didn't have
1: milk? Yeah, great question, Kira. So, I mean, when we're babies, we drink milk. So it has a certain... Right, right. I'll allow that part. (laughs) Um, It has a certain sort of legacy from there on, though. I think that because human babies and animal babies all drink milk, it has a certain reputation as sort of being, you know, very nurturing, very wholesome. So it has that legacy. But in terms of why we drink milk today... It has an interesting history to it. So for most of human history, people weren't really drinking milk. And one of the big issues with dairy milk in particular was refrigeration. For most of human history, we didn't have it, so it would spoil. So you didn't want to be drinking milk. And there were also a lot of technological limitations. But during the Industrial Revolution, we got refrigeration, we got pasteurization, We got agricultural technology that allowed people to be producing milk at far greater scale. So there are some historical reasons why this shift happened. And then part of it is also no accident. The dairy industry has been partnering with the U.S. government for a long time in trying to sell dairy milk to American consumers.
0: So it's my fault for interning at uh, the Got Milk place.
1: Yes, Kira, you did it. Oh, I knew it. And I think it's understandable. Again, dairy has been very successful in integrating itself into people's diets for a long time. A fun fact that I learned is that part of the reason big dairy became so ingrained in everybody's diets was during World Wars One and Two. the government was shipping canned milk and powdered milk abroad to soldiers. They wound up with a milk surplus and then they were like, What do we do with all this milk? So then they wound up being like, I know, we'll give it to kids. So it became part of the school lunch program, which still exists today. And in that sense, it's become very intertwined with our ideas of you need to drink milk to be healthy, to be strong. And it turns out that that's really not necessarily true, apart from when you're a baby. And again, I don't think that it's that milk is bad, but I don't think it's good either. I think it's just an option.
0: After the break, oat milk goes global. So we talked a little bit or I talked a little bit at the beginning about how Este invented or developed oat milk in 1994. And then we've talked about how it's super popular and in Starbucks today. What was the initial reception to oat milk? Like how was it sort of early years
1: out in the world. Yeah, the initial reception was very quiet, I would say. It was it was really developed to cater to people who are lactose intolerant. And I imagine they liked it. They appreciated it. But it wasn't really a big thing until Tony Peterson, who's the current CEO, took over in 2012. That's when it really took off. What turned things around? What did he do? He has a great marketing vision. The marketing vision for Oatly is really two-pronged. One part of it is the sustainability aspect. That's a big deal. Oatly puts their uh, carbon emissions information on their milk cartons. They're very forthright about their commitment. So uh, when you're buying Oatly, you can feel good about your environmental impact. And that's something that his coming to be CEO in 2012, I think, coincided with a lot of people just thinking more about the environmental impact of what they were eating and drinking. And the other part that really helped Oatly take off and by extension oat milk as a whole is the sort of quirky, winkings, a little bit snarky marketing tactics that Oatly uses. So they're very funny, very wry. If you look at their cartons, there are all kinds of catchphrases and slogans. Or, for example, after the Super Bowl commercial that we mentioned earlier in which Tony Peterson was standing in the middle of a field singing. A lot of people didn't like that commercial. People thought it was weird. They didn't appreciate his singing voice. So Oatly started selling T-shirts that said, I totally hated that Super Bowl commercial that you could buy on their website. So they're willing to poke fun at themselves. And I think that that has also made them stand out in the alt-milk world, which tends to be sort of more more virtuous as (laughs) as a market.
0: Paint me a little picture of oat milk's popularity today. We've been talking a lot about how it's big in the U.S. It's available in American Starbucks. Is it also popular around the world?
1: It is. And one of the key strategies that Oatly in particular has used to popularize oat milk is introducing people to it via their favorite coffee shops. So it has partnerships with Starbucks, not just in the U.S., in China as well. Recently, KFC in China started selling oat ice cream. So... One of the best ways to get people really interested in oat milk is via the coffee shop model, especially hipster coffee shops, which is especially where Oatly concentrated. So when it was initially rolling them out in the U.S. and elsewhere, it hasn't been in the major fast food chains. It's been much more in places like La Colombe and Stumptown, places that have a certain vibe that is very gourmet. And I think that that helps acclimate people to the idea of using oat milk, which doesn't have to just be in your coffee, but certainly that's one of the main ways that people use it.
0: And for generally the same reasons, like it's lactose tolerance, uh, it tastes good, it's sustainability.
1: Exactly. Yeah, very similar. And I think that it has, in some ways, it has an easier climb to make in Asia because already people in Asian countries generally consume less dairy. So it's more of something that people are acclimated to. In fact, one of the interesting things that Oatly did from a marketing perspective was when they decided to branch out to China, they created a character, a Chinese character, that spells out together... uh, Plant milk, and they didn't copyright it or trademark it. So that's something that now they created a, a new word.
0: Other than Oatly, who else is in this this game now? Like it, it's a big market, as we've been talking about. Is big milk in the uh, in the oat milk space now? What does the sort of competitive landscape look like?
1: Yeah, so lots of big brands are getting in there. Um, off the top of my head, Danone, Chobani, uh, HP Hood, which is a big American. Dairy brand. So lots of people are getting in on the game because they see the market opportunity. That's something that Oatly is aware of and a little worried about. They confess in their IPO filing because these bigger brands have far more resources. But at the same time, what Tony Peterson has said is that he's confident that they have the sustainability and just the authenticity that we know really appeals to a lot of Gen Z millennial types. And they can make a claim potentially to caring about the environment that other bigger brands brands can't.
0: Like it's ultimately good to be out there more and to be known more than not, I guess. even Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, not being allegiant to any particular oat milk brand, I think the more people that get in the game, the better. Like we should be trying to make these alternatives as available as possible for people who want to have them.
0: I would love to talk about what I think of as the Milk Wars, which is The opposition from uh, Big Dairy, as it were. Tell me a little bit about the kind of opposition or how it's shown up, mostly against Oatly, but in general against the industry.
1: Yeah, great question. So the milk wars are on, and they're big. Uh, So... One of the big concerns from the dairy industry has to do with the adoption of the word milk itself. So Oatly in Sweden is not legally allowed to refer to itself as milk. Another issue in Europe has been using words that we typically associate with Dairy like rich or creamy. That's something where recently the EU made a legal decision on a petition from Big Dairy Europe version. Big Dairy was arguing that oat milk shouldn't be allowed to use those adjectives like rich or creamy. Ultimately, oat milk won. They do get to call themselves milk. They do get to use the words rich or creamy. But it was indicative, I think, of the very real threat that the dairy industry feels from not just oat milk, but plant-based milks as a whole.
0: Do you feel like there's any legitimacy to this argument? Like imagine there's a spectrum of arguments and on one end of that spectrum is maybe the argument that no one can call themselves a sandwich cookie except Oreo, that that's that's their gambit. And then the other end of that spectrum is that no one other than a pharmaceutical company can describe what they're producing as a drug that can help you. Where does the big dairy argument fit on that? Is it it much more Oreo or much more uh, big pharma?
1: From my perspective, I think it's more Oreo. I think that mostly Big Dairy is worried about losing the strong hold that they've had on the public for a long time. And as more and more alternatives pop up, they're just doing what they can to try to capture their business or make sure that they don't lose business. And that's understandable from an economic perspective. But it doesn't mean that as consumers, I think that we should have any reason to be like, I side with Big Dairy. Don't say milk. I think it's fine.
0: If the last few years are any indication, plant-based alternatives, not just of dairy, but of meat uh, and all kinds of foods that are not necessarily great for the environment and how they're produced, is kind of here to stay. Do you think there's any lessons in oat milk? Like anything that we have learned about how to get people to um, choose those products or get industries, I guess, to adapt to these kinds of shifts?
1: Yeah, one lesson that we've learned from Oat milk, as well as brands like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, is that people are willing to try plant based alternatives to meat and dairy, but it has to taste good, which shouldn't be revolutionary, but I think is for a long time. I was a vegetarian for something like 20 years, and a lot of the veggie burger options were just like oats and beans slapped together with a bit of wilted lettuce, and it was nothing appealing. So I think that one lesson is make sure that your product tastes good. I think another lesson has to do with just how marketable sustainability really is. And there's some issues with that. Like, for example, I mentioned earlier, Oatly labels its cartons with uh, its carbon footprint, which is generally a good idea. But there's no standardized way to measure what your carbon footprint is. And also consumers don't necessarily know how to interpret it. So ideally, maybe we would come up with a system sort of similar to movie ratings, but for carbon emissions. But All of that is to say, I think that those are the two big takeaways. Taste good, be sustainable. And if you can be a little, what's the right word? Like not non-virtuous, but not superior in the way that you market it. I think that that's big too. I think That what we're seeing right now is that a lot of people aren't in a place where they're ready to give up meat or dairy completely, but they are willing to reduce their consumption. So the more that brands learn how to market themselves as appealing to that much bigger audience of people who are looking to cut back a little versus people who are looking up to give it up entirely, I think that that's a winning strategy.
0: It's interesting that you say that because it reminds me a little bit of the conversation about cash uh, that I've been having with our colleague, a finance reporter. John Dietry. And one of the big takeaways of that conversation is the thing that will ultimately change people from cash to digital payments is merchants. It's that you go to a store and that you will be buying something with a card or ultimately your phone because that's more convenient uh, versus what probably wouldn't be effective is if someone just stood up and said, let's all switch off of cash now. And I feel like there's kind of parity here. What will win this fight between alternative milks or regular milk is Starbucks, is your local coffee shop, because you'll start to see alternatives there. You'll start to see more alternatives. And at some point, people are just going to be like, well, let me try one. I'm interested in what it's like. Uh, And that ubiquity is going to kind of win, not the fight, like I don't think regular (laughs) milk is going anywhere, but we'll make this landscape less fraught as time goes on and people just get used to these
1: things. Exactly, yeah.
0: One more question for you. What comes after oat milk? What is the next hot new milk that we're going to need to know about?
1: Yeah, so I have two potential candidates that I want to highlight. One is hemp milk, which I mentioned because it is similarly rich and nutty and has a lot of natural fats in it, all of which tends to mean it'll taste good. And two, it's similarly a very sustainable crop. So if you're coming from the environmental perspective, that's a winning one. Another possibility uh, is milk itself being the next milk. And I mentioned that because there was a very fun article in New York Magazine a few weeks ago. The headline was something like, hot girls are drinking whole milk now. And the gist of it was that we've circled all the way back around and that choosing milk at your coffee shop or using whole milk in your cereal is sort of an act of quiet rebellion, I believe, in the words of the article that people can do in a similar way to Maybe like having the occasional cigarette, but not as dangerous, not comparing milk to cigarettes.
0: So by having half and half in my coffee, I've really come like on a roller coaster ride of this opinion. I'm actually cool. I'm trendy.
1: You might be cool. Yeah. And my friend Dina Schenker, who's a food reporter at Bloomberg, had a, a masterful tweet a while back that was Oatly has sort of completed the circuit from being trendy to being normal and boring. So what was once trendy is now just standard and milk itself is cool again.
0: Milk is the new milk.
1: <laughs> Thank you for joining me, Sarah.
0: This was a fascinating combo. Thanks, Kira. That's our obsession for the week. This episode was produced by Katie Jane Fernelius. Our sound engineer is George Drake. And the theme music is by Taka Yazuzawa and Alex Sukira. Special thanks to Sarah Todd and Alex Osla in New York. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Tell your friends about us. Milk that contact list for potential listeners. Then head to qz.com/obsession to sign up for courses weekly obsession email and browse hundreds of interesting backstories.